chapter 7 to this point in our study through Revelation. Jesus the Lamb has conquered through his cross and resurrection. Uh, We saw that he took the scroll, the scroll with seven seals from the right hand of of the Father and he one by one begins breaking these these seven seals. And with the first few seals, we saw God's smaller judgments kind of happening throughout history. And then seal number six took us to the end of history. And we now expect the Lamb to break the seventh seal. We expect God to appear in judgment... But that doesn't happen. Uh, With chapter 7, we encounter a pause. Now, after reading the the first six seals, perhaps some questions have have come to your your mind. I mean, we've looked at conflict and bloodshed and economic collapse and pestilence and persecution and martyrdom for the gospel. We see these things characterizing this present age, and and so we are asking ourselves, how are we supposed to endure that? Who am I to stay faithful through days like that? What does this mean for my future? Will rest ever come? Will comfort ever happen? Or, or what about that question, that, 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 that sobering question at the end of chapter 6? Who can stand? Who can stand? Well, in chapter 7, we get a little pause where God answers these questions. He pauses to clarify who we belong to, He pauses to clarify what that means for the days ahead. He pauses to clarify how we're going to make it. So if you're wondering, with the things you're facing right now, how am I going to make it? How am I going to persevere? This passage holds great hope for you. All right, so let's read it together. Starting in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth. And see, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 
12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's just take the Lord's Supper and be done with that. All right, chapter 7 covers a lot. Let's take it in four chunks. First, we see God's servants sealed for protection. God's servants sealed for protection. Uh, In verses 1 to 3, we get this vision of of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So this this picture of these angels having jurisdiction over the entirety of of the world. And and we find them holding back the four winds of the earth. Now from verse 3, we learn that by these winds, the angels intend to harm earth, sea, and trees. Okay, sometimes a slight breeze is nice. But strong winds can destroy. And sometimes Jeremiah and Zechariah and other prophets would pick up this idea of strong winds, this imagery of strong winds, and they would use it to talk about the way God's judgments were going to fall, like a strong wind. In this case, John sees an inescapable judgment. It's going to come from every direction. And it also falls on the earth and the sea and the trees. And later we learn that these were, later in Revelation, we learn that these were basic to commercial trade. And so this was God just upending the world and society as we know it. But these angels must hold back the four winds. Okay? They must delay God's judgment from coming. Why? So that God can first protect his servants by sealing them. All right? And that idea comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Ezekiel 
9. He, he, Ezekiel has a vision too, and he sees these six executioners with weapons in their hands, and they're supposed to go into the city and destroy all the idolaters in the city. But just before that happens, God commissions another figure to put a mark, it says, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations. Okay, so in Ezekiel, you you get this picture of judgment that's fixing to fall on a city of idolaters, but the faithful, they bear God's mark. And God protects them, the ones who are weeping over over the idols they, they see. God protects them. Well, Revelation picks, that, picks up that picture, and now he, John uses it to describe what, what God does for his servants. There are many in Revelation who bear another mark, the mark of the beast. Revelation breaks the world up into two people. You either wear the mark of the beast, or you wear God's mark. Okay? So some have the mark of the beast... But God marks his servants to protect them from his judgments. Those who wear the mark of the beast suffer God's judgments. Those who who wear God's mark are protected from God's judgments. Now, God's servants will still endure persecution and martyrdom and, and various kinds of suffering, but they are not the objects of God's wrath. That's the point here. Also, notice where God seals his servants. He seals them on the forehead. Okay, in chapter 14, verse 1, John eventually tells us what this seal is. It is the name of the Father and the Lamb. Okay, it is God's name. All right, Uh, the seal is the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads, and that reaches back to... The exodus with the priests who wore God's name on their foreheads. Okay, they, they had the, the stone that said, Holy to the Lord, on their foreheads. So God's seal here, it both assures and it identifies. It assures that God will protect his people. It also identifies them as God's holy priesthood. Now, folks can debate when this sealing occurs. That's not the point here. The point is to paint a picture that reassures Christians who are facing tribulation. God will protect you. His judgments will fall, sometimes with great severity, as we'll see in Revelation. But if you belong to his holy priesthood, if you bear the Lord's name, His aim is not to destroy you when the hard times come. His aim is to keep you and preserve you for himself. All right, now how do you know if you have God's seal? Are we supposed to walk around looking for a visible mark? Tattoo on on your forehead? No, it's a spiritual mark. If there's anything visible to this spiritual mark, it will show when you serve and worship the true and the living God. It will show when 
instead of giving in to the nation's idols, you weep over them. You sigh and you groan at all the abominations around you. Is it your, is it your pattern to sigh and groan over the earth's abominations? Is it your pattern to give yourself wholly to Jesus instead of to the evil things this world participates in? A good question to ask yourself this morning is, whose seal do you bear? If God has marked you as his own, he has committed himself to protecting you. Look next at the second chunk. God's servants renewed and numbered like warriors. God's servant renewed, servants renewed and numbered like warriors. John hears the number of the sealed. 144,000, it says, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, who are these 144,000? It's a big question. Most immediately, verse 3 identifies them as the servants of God. And elsewhere in Revelation, servants of God can refer to all saints in general. Also, in chapter 14, we see these same, the same 144,000. Chapter 14, verse 3, John identifies the 144,000 as those who had been purchased from the earth. Now, if you remember from chapter 5, verse 9, that's the same language we saw of Christ purchasing a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation which is the same words used to describe the great multitude that we see here in a second in verse 9. Okay, so we can at least say that the 144,000 share that in common with the great multitude, the Lamb's redemption. The Lamb has saved them. Something else to consider is the, is the literary structure. Okay, and some people miss this, I think. Uh, when they're in conversations about this identity. But notice that John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000, and then he sees a great multitude. So he hears the 144,000, he sees a great multitude. We have seen this before. Think back to chapter 5. John hears about the Lion of Judah, but when he turns, he sees the Lamb who is slain. Okay, so the Lion and the Lamb form complementary pictures of the same person in chapter 5. That could be happening here. The 144,000 and the great multitude form complementary pictures of the same people. So God seems to be, could be presenting God, God's redeemed from two different angles. One, linking them with the promises that would come for Israel. And the other, seeing that they're, how the promises to Israel flowered and enveloped nations. Okay? 
The list of tribes is also interesting, isn't it? Exactly 12,000 from each. Whereas if you look at the other lists in the Old Testament, you know, the numbers vary greatly. Uh, Reuben was also the oldest, and he was usually listed first. But here, Judah gets first place. Might that have anything to do with the Lion of Judah conquering and now leading the way for his people? Also notice the tribe of Dan doesn't make it at all. What's up with that? Levi seems to be taking his place. Levi didn't make the lists. Why? Because he had no land inheritance in the Old Testament. He had the priests, but no land. He wasn't usually listed. But here, Levi gets included. Might that have something to do with a new and better priesthood that has taken place? All that to say, it doesn't seem like the list here is meant to be taken so literally as people, as people often do. John's point lies elsewhere. Also, given Revelation's symbolic use of numbers, I want you to pay attention to where it comes from. 144,000 is the product of 12 times 12 times 1,000. Okay, in chapter 21... Verses 12 and 14, 12 represents both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And when John then measures the New Jerusalem's width and its length and its height, he, he measures it at 12,000 stadia, 12 times 1,000. Its wall is 144 cubits, so 12 times 12. This is another way of saying that the new Jerusalem in the end will be sufficient to protect and house the whole of God's people. Okay, and so John seems to be using 144,000 in a similar fashion here as a number symbolizing the whole of God's redeemed. The whole of God's redeemed that we will one day see in the new Jerusalem. So where does that leave us then? All right, they are clearly servants of God. They are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They are whole. We might even say in relation to the promises with Israel, they are renewed, a reconstituted people. And they are closely tied to the great multitude, if not the same people, that are viewed from complementary angles. Now, having said that, why does he list them this way? Why this repetition? 12,000. 12,000. 12,000. Well, think back to Numbers chapters 1 and 2. Numbers, you know, those lists you like so much? What do we find there? Well, we find a list a lot like this one, where God takes a census of Israel's warriors. God numbers the men from every tribe who can go to war as, as the people pass through the wilderness. Okay, and when we get to chapter 14, verse 4, he describes, uh, he uses other language that described what Israel's warriors were supposed to be. And so, so we know from chapter 14, verse 4, that we're on the right track with this 
identity. By listing his servants this way, what what God is doing is depicting uh, his redeemed as a mighty army who are prepared for battle as they are passing through the wilderness. Okay? Now, repeatedly in Revelation, the tribulation, which is the time between Jesus' resurrection and the time, be- and, and, and the time of Jesus' return, that day, this day that you're in, in, it's characterized as tribulation. And often it describes that tribulation like the Old Testament described the wilderness. Okay? So you and I are in a wilderness of tribulation. And you know what's in the wilderness? A serpent, a great dragon that's seeking to devour people in the wilderness. And these beast-like kingdoms that are trying to throw you off and cut you off and cut you down in the wilderness. And there's the nations with their idols that are tempting you and drawing you away from your captain. And the weariness of the fight and people falling around you are enough to make you want to quit in this wilderness. That's where you and I are. But John's vision here is supposed to encourage you. God has numbered you and made you part of a complete and perfected army. Not one is missing. More than that, there's a lion-like king from Judah's line. And he has already conquered. And his tribe goes forward to lead the way through the wilderness. And by following his lead, we will make it into the promised land. That's the portrait of the church that John is painting. All right, and that leads us to a third part of this vision. God's servants preserved through tribulation. God's servants preserved through tribulation, through that wilderness, okay? John next beholds this great multitude... They are both innumerable and international. It says no one could number them in verse 9. And they are from all nations and tribes and peoples and languages. Now immediately the promise to Abraham should leap into your minds. God promised to give Abraham children as numerous as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of of sand by the seashore. Also from Genesis 12, we know that all families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham's seed. And so God's redeemed people, we see they encompass people from all over. Not not just Jews, but people from, from all over. Not just people that look like us and do church like us. And live life like us and dress like us. No, they are from everywhere and they are from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different languages. And now they're all here standing before God's throne. Notice that. They are standing. The last time we connected this to to chapter 6, verse 7, the question was asked, who can stand Well, God is answering that question. The people sealed and redeemed by God, they can stand. And standing shows that they are accepted before God. He he welcomes them to, to serve in his presence. But notice, too, they do not stand on their own merits. 
They are clothed in white robes. How did they get those white robes? The angel who comes and interprets this vision for John in verse 14, he tells us they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Obviously, this is not literal. Blood doesn't make things white. What's he talking about? How does blood make something white? Well, in Revelation, white often symbolizes purity and holiness. Now, if you connect those two things with blood, well, we've got ourselves a connection back to the priesthood in in Leviticus 8 and Exodus 29. Okay, it's, it's, it's there in Exodus, Exodus 29 and, and Leviticus 8 that, that we learn that the priests could not enter, the priests who had the robes on, they could not enter God's presence unless their robes were first made holy by means of a sacrifice. Only then could they enter. And now John is seeing the church that way. He sees a countless multitude of priests and God has welcomed them into his presence based on Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' blood has cleansed them. Jesus' blood takes away their sins, the, the, the things that are making them unholy and unclean, the things that are keeping them out of God's presence. Jesus' blood has taken care of everything so that they can enter God's presence... Jesus' blood has readied them for service before God's throne. Jesus' blood can make you ready to serve before God's throne. Jesus' blood will welcome you into God's presence when you trust in Christ. Also notice that they worship with palm branches. Why palm branches? Again, think Old Testament with me. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of you in the men's Bible study were covering the feasts a while back. You probably learned that the Feast of Tabernacles included these palm branches. Seven days the people were to rejoice before the Lord using palm branches and, and other leafy trees. Leviticus 23 then tells us what they were supposed to remember how God made the people of Israel dwell in booths when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. What were they celebrating? They they were supposed to continue celebrating this once they made it to the promised land, looking back, right, getting out the palm branches again once a year to celebrate what? The way God preserved them and kept them all the way through the wilderness. And now John sees the church in heaven. And the angel tells us in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, that wilderness I talked about earlier. And they have passed through the wilderness of tribulation, and now we find them rejoicing in God's faithfulness. God has kept us through the wilderness. He's been faithful. They're on the other side, and they are victorious. 
And so not only does he seal his people, but he keeps them through the hard times and they come out the other side praising God for his salvation. Salvation belongs to our God, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then all of heaven erupts with them in this praise. You see how like piece by piece John is developing this story. He's like painting the church's picture from first to last using Old Testament imagery. And then one last part, we see God's servants comforted in his presence. God's servants comforted in his presence. Verse 15 continues the the priestly imagery here. Remember that the Lamb's blood readied them as priests. What do priests do? Priests serve in God's presence. They serve in God's presence. They were supposed to be a picture of what Adam did in the garden before sin cut him off. Right? Before sin cut us all off in Adam, the priest serving in God's presence. That's what we're all supposed to be. And here, that's what they're doing. The Lamb's blood has, has, has enabled them now to serve in God's presence. Notice it says, therefore they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The word behind shelter there in the ESV has to do with God uh, spreading his tent over you. Right? That's, remember him spreading the tent in the, ta- the tabernacle in the wilderness? And God would take up residence there? Here, God is spreading his own tent over you. Okay? He's tabernacling over you. And so you get this idea, day and night, right? You're, you're forever in God's presence all the time. Now, more details about this are going to come when we get to chapter 21. Chapter 7 is kind of giving us a, a sneak preview of that final day. When God himself becomes our forever shelter, and forever we will serve in his presence. Verse 16 adds, they shall... Hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Again, think back to the Exodus. When was Israel hungry? When was Israel thirsty? When were they experienced the blazing heat of the sun? In the wilderness. Right? And later that wilderness becomes a common way to describe the trials that Israel is facing and the tribulation that they face and the suffering that they, that they face. Even such that later when they, they go back into exile, they're excluded from the land. They're talking, God is talking to them, describing their situation in terms of a wilderness until you get to Isaiah 49... And Isaiah 49 promises that a day will come when God will liberate his people from that kind of suffering. And he promises that a day when a, there's going to be a day when a special servant would come and he would bring redemption not only for Israel but also all of the nations. And Isaiah 49 verse 10 then pictures part of that servant's work with these words. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. 
And John is telling us in Revelation that Jesus is that servant from Isaiah 49. Jesus will bring for his people the day of total freedom. Jesus will lead us out of the wilderness and into a kingdom of abundant provision. The wear and tear of this wilderness, the thorns and the thistles will be no more. And he will guide us to springs of living water. Living water. You know what living water does? Way more than your sprinkler system. Like way more. Don't care how plush your backyard, front yard looks. Right? You read Ezekiel 37 and, and Zechariah 14 and Revelation 22. And you, you get this picture that in the new Jerusalem, these, these living waters will flow from the throne of God itself. And they will go out into the city and then beyond the city, reaching into the desert wastelands of this world and turning them all into, into a garden-like sanctuary that brings healing for all the nations. It is the same water that Jesus offered the woman at the well. It is the same water that you get to taste when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit in your life. But John is saying that one day we will drink this water in full, in in completeness. Another part of our final comfort in God's presence will be no more sorrow. Verse 15 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That comes from Isaiah 25 that that Cameron read for us at the beginning of the service. Isaiah 25 pictures God reigning with his people on Mount Zion, this this final kingdom, and, and God spreads a feast for his people, and God swallows up death forever, and then he wipes away all of our tears. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah could have just said, God's going to take away our sorrow. But that's not what he does. He chooses imagery that makes it far more personal. The imagery is of the Lord himself wiping the tears away from each individual face. So the same God who rules with absolute sovereignty that we saw in chapter 4. He now draws near like a parent to wipe the tears from the face of each child. So from this picture then, God seals us for protection before we face tribulation. God preserves us through tribulation And now God will comfort us in his presence after tribulation. That is a picture we need, is it not? We need that kind of assurance and hope while we face this wilderness of tribulation. So let me close by by reiterating a few points we've seen, but directing them more towards us. First, if you belong to Jesus... Recognize that God has enlisted you as a warrior in the Lamb's army. 
To belong to the Lamb is to belong to His mighty and complete army. The Lion of Judah is your captain. In the same way God dwelled with His kingdom as they marched through the wilderness, so now God dwells with you too as you march through this wilderness. Now eventually we're going to come to this in chapter 12, but it's worth qualifying here. The way you conquer in this wilderness is not through military action, military violence. It is by following the lion in the way that he conquers. He conquers by laying down his life like a lamb. So the weapons of your warfare are truth, love, and self-sacrifice. Those are your weapons. Even when that means dying for your enemies. From whom are you taking your marching orders? What voices determine how you spend your days in this wilderness? Is it the various media outlets constantly blowing up your phone? Is it your circle of Facebook friends and the, the latest controversy everybody's excited about? Is it your own passions telling you what's the best course? Beloved, we have one king that we listen to above all other voices. He speaks to us in his written word. So make sure that that is the chief voice that you are hearing and following. Be sure that you're getting your orders from the king and not your own cravings every day. We are in a war. The Christian life is a battle. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul tells Timothy to share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I think sometimes we lose sight of this mindset and we get lazy. We grow apathetic. We forget that the cosmic battle rages and we start growing slack. Chapter 7 is a good reminder for us in a lot of ways. It tells us who we are. In Christ, God has numbered us like warriors. Is that how you view yourself? As this mighty, complete army that's been perfected and that God is guiding through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. As warriors, we also do not have to fear tribulation. Do not fear tribulation. Do not fear the wilderness. Right now you are in a wilderness-like tribulation. Perhaps you are facing the onslaught of the dragon's temptations. The accuser whispers his wicked lies to create doubt in you about the truth of God's finished work in Christ. Maybe the tribulation has brought great difficulty upon your family situation. 
The trials you bear some days feel like they are more than you can handle. Maybe death has taken a loved one, and some days you find their loss nearly unbearable to keep going. Perhaps you have labored as faithfully as you know how, but other family members and friends think you're naive and foolish for following the Lamb. And it discourages you. As we continue witnessing a drastic downturn in the moral fabric of our own society. Maybe you worry for your children. Or your grandchildren. So how will you make it through these various obstacles? God has sealed you. That's how you make it. We need not fear these days, beloved. If you belong to Jesus, God has set His seal upon you. And if, you're, if His seal is upon you, He will keep you, like we've just seen, He will keep you through the tribulation. Even when the worst of it comes, He will protect you. God protects those who belong to the Lamb. If God has sealed you, you don't have to worry about what's going to come of you. He will keep you. He will supply you and support you with everything you need. In the same way that he did for those, for the remnant in the wilderness, he will do for you. So rest in his ability to save you. You you don't have what it takes to endure this wilderness. But your God does. And if he's sealed you, he will keep you through it. He knows you. His seal is upon you. He won't lose you. You will stand on Mount Zion with the rest of the 144,000. And then finally, rest assured that God will comfort you in his presence. Rest assured that God will comfort you in his presence. If you belong to the Lamb, your future is set. Your future is set. Your future is not determined by the evils of this age. It is determined by Christ and His purpose for you. If you belong to Christ, verses 15 to 17 are a description of your future. With the Lamb, you will pour yourself out like a drink offering here in this wilderness. The wilderness will make you very weary. I was encouraged by... There was a mother that came up to me a while back when we were talking about the martyrs under the altar pouring themselves out, right? And we talked about daily considering... As Christians, that's something we have to consider. How am I going to pour myself out, right? And I had a mother came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, motherhood is a daily pouring out. That was just a good word to remember. wanted to pass that along to some of the other mothers. But all of us as Christians, every day, it's a pouring out of ourselves before the Lord in the wilderness. But the Lord will bring us through it. And he will finally raise you up and he will comfort you in his presence. His hand will wipe away your tears. Uh, I was also floored. I just did some study, some word studies this week just to see 
of, I typed in the words, tears, weeping, mourning, crying, uh, other imagery associated with, you know, wetting your pillow at night with your tears. And I was shocked at how much of the Bible that covers. It is a lot. It, every book of the Bible is feel, filled with tears and weeping and mourning. From, from Job, you know, pouring out his tears when his own friends scorned him. In Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. Even in Psalm 42, this happened even when he thought of the good things. The good things made him weep because they were nothing but a memory of the past. In Psalm 102, another saint cries because of the loneliness he felt. In Psalm 119, another sheds streams of tears because he sees that people are not keeping God's law. In Philippians 3, Paul weeps over those who continue to walk as enemies of the cross. The church weeps when they have to tell Paul goodbye. And another time they weep because they know it's going to be the last time they see him. In John 9, Mary and Martha weep over their brother's death. There's weeping over death and weeping over the downfall of God's people and weeping over the delay of God's promises in Habakkuk. There are even times when something good happens. But the saints still weep because that good thing isn't all that it's supposed to be. I'm thinking of Ezra 3 where they see, they see the foundation of the temple and some are rejoicing at the temple being the foundation of the temple and the others are weeping because it wasn't like Solomon's. It's got to be something better than this. Romans 8 says the whole creation is groaning. So there are many tears in the Bible, beloved. And that shows that God cares about your tears. He knows them. Another psalm tells us that he hides them in a bottle. But one day, one day, he's going to wipe them all away. The tears that saturate the pages of Scripture will one day be wiped away in full because the Lamb has conquered. And this wilderness that's shot through with many sorrows, they will end. And the final inheritance will be ours. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will finally know true comfort and true rest. And all will be well. And all will be holy. And all will be right. So remind each other of these words in tribulation. Point each other to this picture in chapter 7 of Revelation. Remember God's assurance even now as we come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we...
we do ask that you would bring the day when sorrows will be no more. Jesus, swallow up death forever. Spread the feast for us once and for all. Please, we long, we long for your presence to shelter us from every harm. Until then, give us endurance in this wilderness. Help us fight the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.